Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. I'm your co-host, Jack Neflin. And joining us this week, we have... Seth McLaughlin, your most goth guest. That's true. You are the most goth of the guests. By a pretty wide margin. Yeah, Sarah Hollowell was goth-ish occasionally in her youth, but I've seen pictures of you, of you doing a drag version of Sexy Pinhead. <laughs> you can't tell right now, but I'm wearing my entire uh, ebony regalia right now. While lounging around your apartment, as you usually do. Always. Thank you so much for joining us, Stefan. As you can probably tell by the episode art and our previous announcement, this is part one of our Harry Potter double feature. Mm-hmm. Harry Potter and the way too long episode. <laughs> Today we will be covering films one through four. So that is Sorcerer's Stone, Chamber of Secrets, Prisoner of Azkaban, and Goblet of Fire. Also, by the time you're listening to us, we will be right around our two-year anniversary of the podcast. Yay! This should also be our 100th episode, not including Gratuitous Thrones. Yeah, we planned it out very well that way. Haha, <laughs> planned. Yes, and also if you just ignore the last season of Game of Thrones, as we are doing for this podcast, the numbers work out. And also as I'm doing for, you know, my good health and judgment. Exactly. We're not going to summarize the books, because I assume you know how the Harry Potter goes. If not, in the episode description, we have a very thorough summary that is not at all biased. <laughs> also, I expect our listeners to have just picked it up through cultural osmosis there is boy he live under stairs bad things happen to him he causes problems for everyone else's education for seven years yeah just about all right so why don't we go ahead and get down to it we should probably start at the beginning mr mrs vernon dursley who was number four preferred drive uh that's all i got actually sorry i used to know this it's fine i don't expect you to read the first paragraph but yes we are going to begin with harry potter and the sorcerer's stone Came out in 2001. And it had a shockingly good cast. Like, I think the cast of this movie is the thing that it brought to us that is most important. So good. Uh, Azpunia is the best acting and casting. Well, best Dumbledore of the two Dumbledores. Three Dumbledores now? Well, four. Four. There's first Dumbledore, second Dumbledore, young Dumbledore, and younger Dumbledore. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. If this keeps going, we'll have enough uh, Dumbledores to take on all the Xehanorts from Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> Same character. <laughs> Kinda, yeah. Or alternatively enough to like take on all the Doctors. Mm. But yeah, I, I do think that we have a point. The casting of all the young actors for this film series is excellent, and I don't think it would be as beloved as it is today without Speaking of casting, did you know that Rosie O'Donnell and Robin Williams both auditioned for this movie? Wait. As Molly Weasley and Hagrid respectively? Oh, wow. Robin Williams as Hagrid would be so good. That sounds amazing. Like, I love who we have now, but um, Robin Williams would have had a great time with the character. Mm-hmm. Casting British uh, actors? Mm. Yeah, I-, I think keeping all of the actors British does give a... I don't know, sense of authenticity to everything. Sure. Especially since for a film that is as high profile as this by a British author, it makes sense to kind of keep that all together. Yeah. They also originally cast the actor who played Klaus in the Nickelodeon series Unfortunate Events as Harry because they didn't think Daniel Radcliffe's parents would allow him to do it. And they cornered his parents at a theater production and convinced them. <laughs> Oh, wow. Like, by gentle persuasion or the hard edge of steel? Unknown. They 
happen to be at the same theater and they're like they're like oh that's Neil Radcliffe and his parents we're gonna go talk to them and by the end of the show they had switched their Harry Potter actors because the director really wanted Daniel Radcliffe and honestly bless them Daniel Radcliffe would not be doing all the weird shit he's doing these days if this did not happen yeah like he has enough money to just not worry about it and we get to see him as a like corpse and a man with guns bolted to his hands Equus. oh yeah he was an Equus. I think he was an Equus like immediately after these to kind of like do something very different so he didn't start getting typecast. Yes. It's that thing that um Disney Channel actors do where they do something like really sexy to show how adult they are now. Yeah, pretty much. It just happened to be with a horse. It's fine. Uh we also get Emma Watson, who is uh pitch perfect as Hermione. Mm-hmm. And Rupert Grant, who's just himbo later in the film. That's true. That's true. Which it's not necessarily the direction that I would have taken with a run, but if you had to pick something, which they clearly did, I'll take that. Yeah, Jackson and I have had numerous conversations about how we would fix the Ron problem. Mm-hmm. The Ron blum. Watching these movies again from a critical point of view, like Rupert Grint's facial acting is some of the best in the first few films. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. So, Emma Watson and Daniel Radcliffe is, is there? Yeah. He does. Bland and Wonder very well, but just those two. I mean, I think for like the first couple films, that's totally fine because Harry's still getting acclimated to this entire new world. And they are children. I don't want to like read children for acting better yeah. than I can. Right. Like, uh, what's his face? Tom Felton. Not that strong of an actor for the first few films. I do think everyone kind of grows into their roles, though. Right. Although also, I imagine they've like immersed themselves in these characters for seven years. You kind of would have to. Like, there's no way for... Emma Watson did not grow up kind of brainy and outspoken, or for Rupert Grint to grow up into, you know, someone who means well. Mm-hmm. Also, McGonagall, perfect casting. Mm-hmm. It's not how I envisioned her when I read the books, but like she is kind of like ingrained in my memory as she is now. How did you imagine her? Because like we haven't really talked at all about how like the, the books end our lives and all that jazz. She. In the book, is described as having tightly wound dark hair or black hair, and I always imagined her a bit more ethnic. Okay, sure. Pakistani um, is what I, I kind of imagine now. Mm. I just assumed that her name was you know, a marital name. Right, sure. That makes sense. However, uh, Maggie Smith is phenomenal and embodies everything in this role. Yeah, like, well, while we are praising the actors, they are all almost universally white, and there's definitely room to fix that next time around for these characters. Part of that is, unfortunately, that for British casting white is kind of the default still i mean hollywood is not much better in that regard either but there is slow incremental progress being made Mm -hmm. and like you're also dealing with kind of this aristocratic boarding school which also reads very white yeah yes so trying to avoid talking too much about like plot points from the books what were some choices of films made that were really good or really bad I like the way that they toned down Harry's scar for the films. Mm. I think that having it be more ostentatious would be more distracting. It also means that Daniel Radcliffe didn't have to go through as much makeup. They didn't have to do as much reapplications for throughout filming and probably cut down on the budget quite a bit. I get what you're saying, but also the whole like lightning bolt scar is kind of an iconic thing. And I look at that and I don't see lightning bolt. I just see like the letter S. I do think that maybe um, adding in a little bit of green in there, just making it a little bit more supernatural would have helped. Sure. A smart move with his hair that it mostly covers a scar usually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
You only really see it when there's like big magic that also has a wind machine that blows his hair back. That's how you know it's powerful magic, the wind machines. Mm-hmm. I love the aesthetic of this, of especially the first two movies. I, I, I just remember like seeing them the first time and being like, oh, this is exactly how I imagined Hogwarts looking. The first two movies definitely have a big roll doll feel to them. And then we get to the second movie and everything just becomes the blue Twilight filter four years before Twilight. Third movie. Yes, third, sorry. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Chris Columbus definitely had a vision and it worked incredibly well for bringing this world to life. And I really wish that he had the energy to keep going, at least for a couple more films. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have this good mix of like whimsical and dark, but a lot, a lot of the dark is lit warmly. So it's, it doesn't feel too frightening for kids. It doesn't feel like off-puttingly dark. It feels the way that like a fireplace makes uh, the room feel a little bit more magical, but not necessarily like spooky, not spooky, if that makes sense. Yes. Uh, borrowing some terminology from uh, War of Ashes, it's, it's grimsical. Mm. Yeah, that's- I love that. I love that so much. Yeah. Uh, war of Ashes is a tabletop war game about warring factions of Muppets. <laughs> Good. I'm looking into it afterwards. What was it called again? War of Ashes. One thing they did take out that I'm kind of sad about, during the bit at the end where they're going through all the trials, in the books Hermione's the one who defeats the Devil's Snare by like lighting it on fire and stuff, but she kind of forgets that she can create fire with her mind because Hermione's not great under pressure, and they have to remind her that she's a witch. And they kind of tone that down in the movie, and I kind of wish they kept that. I think it's like it's a really fun bit that lets Hermione be a little bit less like omnicompetent. Mm-hmm. Yes. They also take out her potion trial, which is really annoying because they mention that Snape like has a hand in protecting the Sorcerer's Stone. Right. Yeah. And I really wish they would have kept that in because Harry could have gotten to that and then realized Snape is helping protect it and then maybe start second guessing whether Snape's the one he's going to meet at the end of it trying to get the Sorcerer's Stone. Because mm-hmm. we have all the other heads of house like represented because like Sprout did the Devil's Snare and then McGonagall did uh, the keys and Flitwick did the, tre- the chessboard. Then we just don't have Snape. Mm-hmm. And I, I also get that like part of it is for expediency. Like this movie doesn't have it too bad as far as like getting to things quickly, but other movies definitely do face that pretty hard. But I think like that would have been one more scene to get through. Yeah. I'm not super upset that it's gone. I do miss its absence, but I'm not really holding it against the film. We said a few times but we'd love to see like the extended edition of these things. Mm-hmm. Why don't we get into like some more nitty gritty stuff for the film? Okay. Sorry, before you get there, um, I forgot that in my notes I wrote down uh, Dumbledore looking into the mirror and saying, when I look into the mirror, I see Michael Gambon for some reason. <laughs> uh, I think I want to start talking about how quickly we move through all the things with the Dursleys. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm not super upset that we do. I think that was a good choice. We get enough of them to get a sense for how awful Harry's life is, and we kind of get that wonderful montage of Mr. Dursley trying to hide all the letters. No post on Sunday. <laughs> no blasted letters today! No, sir! Not one single bloody letter! Not one! Yes. I do wish we slowed down when they're in the shack and Harry is attempting to celebrate his birthday, though. I think if we had maybe a couple more minutes of just Harry lamenting his lot in life, it would have added quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm. Especially if you had a scene where he's like staring out the window there 
and it parallels the scene where he's staring out the window at Hogwarts a few scenes later. I think that could have been a good like juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also, I think that the films are not super interested in Harry's time with the Dursleys, it seems. Unless it's like very necessary for the plot for him to be there. So great. We get some great things in Prisoner when Aunt Marge comes to visit, that it's the family and then Harry separated in a darker lit area of the of the scene that I think does really well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we don't really get that in the the, the first two. Yeah, and, and I get wanting to kind of just get through things with the Dursleys as quickly as possible because that's not what people came here to see. They came here to see all the magic and wonder that Harry experiences. Mm. Mm. And the shorthand is like the Roldalian evil, evil. He's living with with Augustus Gloop and his family, basically. Pretty much. And we get that pretty pretty much off the bat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That Petunia like speaks to him when he comes into the kitchen is just, it, that's all you need to really hear. Why don't you just cook the breakfast and try not to burn anything? Yes, Aunt Petunia. Right. It's not that we necessarily need more to understand them. It's just kind of it. It feels very rushed if you um, if you're not seeing it for the first time. Yeah, and I think part of that is just the ability to convey more information with a visual medium than you can in a written medium. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know that's one of the benefits of adapting. Uh, a book to film is you can convey a lot more information in a shorter period of time. Yeah. Speaking of conveying information, uh, there is a running thing where they will transplant the dialogue from the book directly into the movie. That doesn't always work. Like, there's a bit where Harry describes the, the school clothes that the Dursleys were going to give him as Off at me like bits of old elephant skin. It doesn't really feel like a Harry line from the way that Harry is in the rest of the films. Mm-hmm. It feels very like, this is a line we like from the books, we're going to keep it. Yeah. On the flip side, the scene where uh, Alan Rickman is doing the entire like first potions class. I can teach you how to bewitch the mind and ensnare the senses. I can tell you how to bottle fame, brew glory, and even put a stopper in death. They kept all of that, and I'm like, yes, good. Keep it. Good. I love. I also love how hammy the, uh, the acting in the Wizarding World is compared to the Muggle World. Yeah, I described the Wizarding World as being like a drag version of a Sherlock Holmes movie from the 80s. Yes. Yeah. While we were watching this, we definitely decided that uh, Snape was the wizard equivalent of a theater kid. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think he's actually that like evil of a person. I think he's just too dramatic mm-hmm. to express himself properly. <laughs> Snape definitely needs to like, write songs or poetry. He needs an artistic outlet. I think Snape needs, like, he needs a bass guitar. What other scene that's uh, a little bit different from the books? Uh, Harry sorting. Uh, I wrote my note. Uh, the first thing the visiting world got rid of was uh, the Latin al- alphabet, but not the words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the order that they get sorted, it makes absolutely no sense. And I get, again, expediency. Mm-hmm. But montage. Yeah, like it could have been a montage. But the also the other weird thing that happens is so in the book everything that the Sorting Hats is is saying to Harry it's loud yeah it's allowed in the film whereas in the book it's at least I interpreted it as all in Harry's head and he was the only one who could hear the Sorting Hat right like kind of deliberating about where to put him mm-hmm. and like it's not like we get reaction shots from the audience watching Harry be sorted and having like the Sorting Hat say things about him. But we don't get non-reaction shots from them, so we don't know that they can't hear him. It's also weird because everyone else is very easily placed. Yeah. 
and he's sitting there for a good like 30 seconds to a minute remind me wasn't neville's like a long placement too in the books well it also was yes yeah i think it would have been a good character beat for neville mm-hmm. we should have gotten neville soaring and not susan bones who bones. who the fuck is susan bones uh, why is she here at the necklace later in, in four movies um but yeah oh yeah yeah, she's also a member of Hufflepuff. A, a named member of Hufflepuff. There are like half a dozen. Yep. There's also the person who is supposed to preside over Harry's trial in more movies. Who is? Susan Bones' mother uh, is the, the oh the witch who, who runs Harry's trial later. I think we do see her, but she's not named. Yeah. We've watched up to five at this point of recording. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's one of those like four people who read the books moments. Which I do appreciate. I'm here for, like, little nods for the book readers. One last thing I want to talk about is, and this goes for both the book and the film, I really love how the Mirror of Iriset is done. Mm. Specifically, Harry bringing Ron in and us hearing what Ron's, like, greatest hopes and dreams are. And I think it shows us how big of a maturity gap there is between the two of them. I agree that it's a good scene. I don't know if we really need it. I feel like it's a bit of a plot cul-de-sac to explore the interior origin of these characters, and I kind of feel like there might have been other ways to do that throughout the film. Like, it's a very good scene. It's a very good part of the books. It's, a, it's like, really interesting, like, dialogue and stuff for everybody, but I feel like it doesn't really go anywhere, and even at the end, there was ways to work around the Mirror of Aristide riddle the Dumbledore made mm-hmm. for, the, for the, like, where to hide the stone mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm sad that we don't get Dumbledore saying that he sees socks in the mirror. Yes, it's a very cute scene in the book. And then we joked about how it's not actually socks, but oh, that's yeah. what he has to tell Harry because it's uh, not PG. Because <laughs> <laughs> Dumbledore's in uh, Magic Mike XXL. <laughs> but speaking of Dumbledore, the drinking game that I have for these movies is drink every time Dumbledore makes a very questionable decision on Harry's behalf without consulting him first. Entire series is a waterfall. It sure is. Uh, this movie has the most so far, actually, um, at five drinks for leaving Harry with Dursleys, hiring Hagrid for covert ops, the whole scare him straight thing where it's like, hey, let's send the kids out into the Forbidden Forest as children. The whole thing where he's like, the lesson to take away from this whole experience is that love is the ability to touch someone and kill them. And the the stuff at the end where like, hey, 160 points to Gryffindor, because plots. I, I've written Welcome to Hogwarts where everything's magic and the points don't matter. <laughs> exactly. You could also argue that Dumbledore giving Harry the invisibility cloak is another one. Yeah, because it gives it that really dodgy visual effect because we weren't quite there yet. I, I think the only reason that we didn't end up giving him another one is because it was in his dad's will. Yeah. You can blame James Potter for that, as we should blame most things. Couldn't just be in their, their vault of Nazi gold? <laughs> their what? Gringotts. Yes, but Nazi gold? I mean, I assume that they stole it from Death Eaters. Okay, sure, I'll take it. Also, the fires like were horrors and went immediately into hiding a couple years out of college, uh, out of school. Where's this money from? Maybe from the Axel Potter family. Sure. I do like the idea of it just that they Robin Hooded a bunch of Death Eaters. That sounds fun. Also, Harry's body count for this movie is one. It's weird because his spell count is zero. <laughs> Wait, really? This entire movie. No, not on screen. Oh my gods. Not one. Ron casts more spells. What the f- How- What? Wow. That is weird. 
Yeah, like pretty much all of the spell casting for the trio is Hermione. That's fair. I, I mean, as we would expect, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Of the best spells like throughout the series, especially if you don't include fight scenes. Yeah, which I don't, and we're going to explain why in Chamber mm-hmm. of Secrets. Before we completely leave Sorcerer's Stone, though, I went to to prop things because that's my thing. Oh, sure. In the first movie, all the floating candles in the Great Hall are actual candles. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Uh, they built a whole rig, and they are on lines. Um, however, one of those lines burned through because they're candles, and after that, they replaced it with CGI. <laughs> Reasonable. How do you do that? That's like, if you if your wick was also suspending it in the air, but you're also setting that wick on fire. I mean, if you had a, like, base for the candle that mm. was the same color, and then you had, like, four fishing lines uh, oh, okay, spaced sure. and I guess it could work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, all the food in the Great Hall scenes is real food. Oh, wow. And it creates such a stench that in the next movies, they just resin cast did the food, except the ones that were being eaten. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. You can then reuse that. Yeah, especially since when you're shooting and doing multiple takes, that food is going to get cold, it is going to hit the danger zone, it's not safe for human consumption. Mm. However, luckily in the movies, it's not made by slave labor, so that's good we know of until the next movie no it never comes up as we've mentioned we've watched until five at this point and there's no mention of spew there's no mention of house uh, house elves that i don't want to say employed but working they are working (laughs) working for hogwarts i like chamber secrets a lot it's a pretty good movie but it introduces a thing to the series that i don't like which is that all spells are bright glowy things that knock you backwards and that's all they do there's no other effect Mm. One can summon snakes, and then one can destroy that living snake. <laughs> one can uh, wipe your memory while also throwing you backwards. One can summon like, slugs into your stomach while also throwing you backwards. <laughs> I think it was kind of a necessity for filming on set, so the actors could understand what exactly what was going on, and they had feedback. Mm-hmm. I get you, but also I think it reduced a lot of the creativity of some of the spells. Like, in the Dueling Secret, it's supposed to be, like, the tickling spell or the, like, laughing too much spell. Mm-hmm. And I think those are more reasonable spells for second years to have than Spell of Fist. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I just think that that was Chris Columbus's way of working around it. I do think later on in the series, uh, things get a little bit better. We get more of Hagrid's running gag of saying, uh, I shouldn't have said that. I should not have said that. I shouldn't have said that. I'm so glad it's a thing. It's so good and sweet and pure. Mm-hmm. We should have continued. Yeah. But Hagrid kind of becomes a bit less of a character over time because he's more comical than the tone the movies are going for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the biggest noticeable thing jumping from the first to the second one is all of the actors have aged significantly. <laughs> We started p- deciding what their puberty upgrade was for this movie. Ronald's voice is like full octave level. Yeah, like uh, Rupert Grint took a deeper voice. Um, Daniel Radcliffe yes. took taller. Mm-hmm. Hermione took having good hair. Dumbledore's puberty upgrade for the next movie is truly wild, though. Just <laughs> <laughs> uh, weird. Just magic facelifts. <laughs> this is also the film that introduces Mr. Weasley. So we finally have that dynamic between Mr. and Mrs. Weasley, and it is fantastic. I would definitely watch like a whole like sitcom in the Weasley household. I mean, the two of them are just like a Britcom married couple. Yeah. 
the introduction scene for Arthur, he comes says so he notices Harry and Molly's like, Your sons flew that enchanted car of yours to Surrey and back last night. <laughs> and rather than chastise them, is first like, Did you really? How'd it go? Oh, oh, I mean, that was very wrong indeed, boys. Very wrong of you. I love him so much. Oh, yeah. And that's all you need to know about them as characters, and it's perfect. It's a, it's very economical storytelling, and I appreciate that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although I made a dark realization rewatching this film. Oh no! Go ahead. Uh, Jackson posted about this on Twitter, but if you follow the allegory to its logical conclusion, how J.K. Rowling has set up Muggleborns and their place in wizard society, Arthur Weasley is just an African American studies professor. Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> and it is very cursed content. <laughs> If you really want terrible things, reading the books, Hagrid is much more dismissive of Hermione because she's a muggle-born. And, like, in the movie, one of the first things Harry learns about the wizarding world is slurs. <laughs> gotta, gotta start that early. I'm glad that they changed that for the movies. I don't recall that from the book, and I prefer not knowing. Mm-hmm. That's the whimsy. The, the Weasley's, like, kitchen door, which is, like, part window, part barn door. I love this book so much. <laughs> the burrow is great. So much set design that went into that, it all works so well to create a real sense of place that it's hard to express what economics must be like in this world where you can just conjure food and all these things, but they still create this sense of like lower class family somehow, despite having like things that people would pay an arm and a leg to own because magic. Yeah. Although I think they are working around a bug of the world building and not a feature. Yes. But we can't get into world building or we will be here all day. Although, as a quick sidebar, a thing I saw from Brendan Mulligan, who's the DM for Dimension 20, he talked about how Harry Potter has some of the best world building he's ever seen, not because it's necessarily good and coherent, but because it's memorable. Like, even years later, everybody knows, like, what house they're in, and everybody remembers, like, the spell names and kind of things like that. Like, J.K. Rowling created a very vivid world, even if the world doesn't always make sense. I think part of that is because of how the world building engages the reader at every level of society. It's not just all high level things. It's all these like small everyday items. Mm-hmm. And I do want to commend JK for that. It's just that because of how much world building there is, sometimes wires get crossed and there's also very uh, glaring blind spots for how things are actually supposed to work. Mm-hmm. And she's building this all as she goes. It shouldn't have, like, a series Bible coming in. Mm-hmm. I also like how the, the Weasley family is more of a, an allegory. Or not, maybe not allegory. I don't know. Um, they have all the privileges that the Malfoys do. They are a pair of the family that should garner them some respect. But because they, they choose to embrace the idea, idea of equality in the magical world, they get shunned because we still have a lot of Voldemort's reign in the background. Mr. Weasley is a great wizard but chooses to do what he loves. He makes enough that he can support his family, and they can they can still do, you know, trips to Romania and trips to Egypt, but they're not living in this opulence. Right. But also, I can't imagine them enjoying opulence. Molly Weasley knits a sweater for all of her kids every year. Like, I can't imagine her, like, in a house with tall stone pillars and thematically colored lights or whatever. Mm. While we're talking about the Weasleys and going back to the car a little bit, Hmm. So Harry and Ron aren't able to get onto platform nine and three quarters. And rather than wait for Mrs. Weasley to come out after the train leaves and see what the hell's going on or anything like that, 
they're Gryffindors, so first ideas are best ideas, and they're like, we'll drive the car to Hogwarts. It works out pretty well for them. Yeah, like, I'm not saying it's bad world building or that the characters are badly written because they made a dumb decision. It's just a, oh, children, and oh, Gryffindors. Mm-hmm. I will say the flying car sequence goes on a little too long. It's fine. In a movie that had less plot, I wouldn't care, but... There's enough going on in this one that I think they could have cut, like, the Ron or Harry or whoever falling out the door scene and gone with just, like, them almost getting hit by the train then arriving and then put that two minutes somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So why don't you just follow the train? You, you're, you're, you found the train, just follow it. I think the thing was that they, like, found the train and then had to veer off and that's when they fell out. Also, Snape tells us only seven muggles witnessed this. Only seven? In London? In London. London? Yes. Eh, it's probably foggy. It's London. I get it. Speaking of the Weasleys, though, I think I'm sad about Ginny has no lines or agency in this movie. Just this movie? Okay, but <laughs> it's noticeable here since she's like the fulcrum of the plot, but she's not really a character. She's there. She has that truly amazing bit where she sees Harry and runs away, but mm. there's not like scenes of her like hanging out with them or talking or, I don't know, being involved in the narrative so we care about her as a character uh-huh. yeah and and to a certain extent i can understand ron wanting to distance himself from his younger sister who is a first year no i'm a second year now like i'm a big boy but it continues on for a number of other films and it just continues to be really weird mm-hmm. i also can't imagine hermione putting up with that from ronald <laughs> speaking of Ginny and how the plot kind of doesn't do a whole lot with her. I'm also really frustrated by how the plot deals with Hagrid. And this is probably a criticism of the book also. Um, But it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for Hagrid to be reacting to the sequence of events the way that he does. He sees Harry, who he cares about as if he were a son or a nephew, being blamed for these attacks the same way he was blamed for the attacks 50 years ago. And it doesn't seem to affect him in any way. He doesn't seem to notice that these events are very similar to the thing that might be the most traumatic experience of his life. Everyone was here for Was here. Dumbledore was here. McGonagall was apparently students with the Potter, so maybe she wasn't there. Well, as we've established from Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them 2, Ghosts of Georgia, or whatever, McGonagall was a teacher there in the 40s, so... How? With James Potter. Yeah, we see her name on a, like, Quidditch trophy the year nope, before she was James. A teacher. She was a teacher there in the 40s, before she was born. Is it this, like, dumb Soul Calibur thing where it's, like, McGonagall's mother who looks exactly like her and has the same name? Maybe. Also, these movies reminded me of the thing that I forgot from the books, that McGonagall is a secret jock. She is the jockiest. <laughs> Take with her rules until it comes to her sport. A choice in the movie that I really liked. I think in the book, uh, it's just a vague wand raising. Towards the end of the film, Lucius Malfoy goes to like attack Harry, and you can you can hear him saying <laughs> like Avada Kedavra before Dobby like just, uh, he's going to mur- <laughs> yeah murder this child in front of witnesses in a school <laughs> right outside the principal's office. Yeah, he's the governor of the school, so it's it's fine, I'm sure. I mean, yeah, but like. I think it was a really good choice to put that in there before, like, the general audience necessarily knows what that means, but we, the book readers, get how serious it is. Like, that was a really great choice and a great way to use your world building in advance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, it gives us that, uh, the Dobby scene, which 
Man, Dobby's one of the best characters. I'm not a huge fan of how long they let his like self-flagellations go on. That's true. Although, I feel like Harry's trying to stop him, but Dobby's incredibly strong and can't be stopped. Do you have how powerful are house elves? Because, like, he seals up a portal, he controls a bludger, he apparently stops Hermione from phone calling the Dursleys home because she is a muggle and does have a phone. In the words of uh, someone who was almost Hagrid, phenomenal cosmic power, itty-bitty wardrobe. <laughs> uh, um, that actually tracks pretty well with Nissi, Thompson Goober, like, kobold thing that uh, house elves are based on from, like, uh, folklore and stuff. These very, like, strong magical creatures who also have really, like, specific limitations. It makes them feel more magical than the kind of hard magic that some of the the school is teaching. I think that works. Yeah. It also works with the Wizarding World's subjugation of ugly creatures. Yep, pretty much. Yeah, we didn't really get into the awful anti-Semitism with Goblins of Gringotts. Nope. Yeah. It's there. There are plenty people who are more qualified to talk about it than us who have. Mm-hmm. And there are many ways yeah. to fix that. They didn't do those things. No. Or at least to mitigate it, to minimize the badness. Mm-hmm. However, I think what they did not minimize and did really well was that basilisk. That basilisk looks so cool. Oh yeah, especially compared to the troll from the first film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do think like a lot of the large creatures here, they were able to do some animatronics and have some more practical effects, which I think helps with that. And the basilisk is a reptile, and reptiles are way easier to animate than normal flesh. But like still, even just like, the design of the... The character design, as it were, is still very evocative of a snake, but also like a dinosaur or a dragon. It has these like these horns that snakes don't really have generally. Yeah, and the shape of the head is very not snake-like. Mm-hmm. Which I really enjoyed. As someone who has a, a big fear of snakes, I, I cannot watch the snake scene in the first movie or any of the Nagini scenes in the later movies. <laughs> but the is devoid enough from snake that I'm not repulsed. That's fair. Yeah, it reminded me a lot more of something like a Lenorm. Yeah. Speaking of like the Chamber of Secrets and whatnot, so we have the ghost of Tom Riddle, I guess it is. It's kind of this Horcrux manifesting. But Tom Riddle, as he's dressed, he's in some Slytherin colors. He's got like this gray-black tie, or maybe it's slightly blue. Mm-hmm. Like The first time we see him, it's in this like flashback sequence mm-hmm. and everything is all like monochrome but later on we see him again and i really wish that as it's revealed that he is the heir of slytherin we got that green come into his tie and it was as if this manifestation was like hiding his origin mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think that would have been really neat not necessarily the fault of the film for not doing that but I mean, they did a good job of making Tom Riddle look like a older version of Harry, the kind of cool incompetence that Harry wants to become in theory. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I don't think that the correlation between evil wizards and Slytherin came about until after Voldemort fell, and the Wizarding World is looking for more of a scapegoat. Hmm. That makes a lot more sense for the world building, because surely, surely, if it's always the case that like Slytherin equals bad, then why are you still allowing him to be? Or at least, why isn't there, like, a school counselor? Someone, not even a wizard, just someone with, with a psychology degree. Anyone. I want to imagine this, that's the first thing that McGonagall puts in. Because I have so many notes over these movies that's just, listen to McGonagall. <laughs> yeah. 
One other like weird thing of note. So we get one of the attack scenes written on the wall. We'll know who the heir of Slytherin is. And then it immediately cuts to like happy Christmas music because everyone's like gone home for break. And it's just this weird emotional whiplash. Yeah. I definitely think that probably could have been a scene in between those two, but it seems really, really odd. And there might have been a scene, but they had to cut it for time. I can understand how, like, parts of the movie you can see where they probably had stuff in the script that they had to, like, leave on the cutting room floor before it even got to the filming stage. Talk about Jenny Weasley not being as present. And in my research, I found that there were scenes they filmed with Bonnie, with Bonnie Tyler. Bonnie Tyler? No, that's the wrong name. Bonnie Wright? Where it, it would foreshadow more things. There, there was a scene with her and the roosters that we see Hagrid burst into Dumbledore's office with. I think that would be a scene to go between those. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just anything to make her, like, a character who has stuff going on. So she's out of the plot until she's relevant again. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that might make it a little more obvious, because, like, they don't do a great job with the mystery element, because it kind of boils down to Hagrid, obviously not, Draco, too obvious, and Ginny, but... Or maybe Harry. Maybe Harry's secretly evil. Harry has killed one person so far, and no one has mentioned it. No one cared about Quirrell. He was from Earth, too. <laughs> uh, do you think we're good with uh, Chamber of Secrets? Uh, can we talk about Kenneth Branagh for a minute? Talk about what? Kenneth Branagh, who plays Lockhart. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, we can. I love his performance. I love his fashion. He's so good. That's how I want the entire Wizarding World to dress. <laughs> but also, why did we hire him? Uh, that's a really good question. However, that is book question, not movie question, so... I have an ongoing theory that it was it was a, a thirst tire via Dumbledore. I will <laughs> I will accept that. I think that is a better explanation than any canon one that can be given. <laughs> but him and his and Lucius Malfoy's acting was everything for me, and I love it. Oh yeah, uh, I feel like while the movies are not musicals, in the interior life of Kenneth Branagh as Lockhart, <laughs> they are. That that makes a lot of sense. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, it does bring up how we never see Quirrell teaching, apart from, like, one scene where he's, like, roaring at a goat or whatever. Uh, he's holding an iguana. Yeah, that's what I said. And I, I feel like we should have had at least one scene of Quirrell teaching to, like, establish him as a character. I feel like we do a thing where they don't want to put the big bad TM on screen too much, and it's kind of a noticeable problem. Yeah, it also goes against, like, good mystery writing. Like, you want the villain to be introduced early. Mm-hmm. But speaking of the villain, my drink count for Dumbledore's questionable choices this time around is three. One of them being hiring Lockhart, two being the Dueling Club. It's like allowing the Dueling Club to be a thing is a problem, but also his whole thing where he tells Harry, ah yes, you must have been very loyal to be to summon Fox to you, and the takeaway here is that loyalty (laughs) equals survival. I mean, that is Dumbledore's, like, mission statement. That's how he gets his followers. Right? Yep. It's fine. It's fine. Saved Hagrid from prison in exchange for loyalty. I think that there are definitely Dumbledore Voldemort parallels that we do kind of get, but not as thoroughly as we could. But also, I get that Harry's kind of being drawn in by this character, so it Mm. works. Yeah. It's also, like, Harry's in this one way or another. Like, he got chosen. Yeah. Well, not yet. Currently, it's just like, sorry, Harry, you're you're a prophecy. Uh, Do you have any prop stuff for this movie? Not as much. I did think of another one from Sorcerer's Stone when we mentioned Quirrell. Hmm. The cauldron in the in the room he's in was already there, and they tried to move it, but 
But they were like, no, no, it just fits the scene. We're keeping a cauldron. Amazing. Well, Salgar's and Bruce Wayne shop at the same secret hideout uh, installation company. <laughs> but speaking of keeping things and leaving things in for unclear reasons, let's talk about uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, the most divisive of the movies. So I want to get into a thing that kind of bridges film two and film three. At the end of the second film, Hermione gets unpetrified and she's like running through the Great Hall to meet her friends, everything like that. And we can see like the huge smile on her face when she sees Harry and they hug. And then apparently JK changed her mind about the later romance subplots and Prisoner of Azkaban begins The Pivot. Oh yeah. It is very noticeable watching them back to back. Mm Mm-hmm. So with the transition, like, the beginning of this movie with the blowing up of the ant and the night bus is still very Roldalian mm-hmm. until we get on the train to Hogwarts, and that's when we enter Blue Filter Land. Yep. Yes. And we don't leave. Also, I hate the night bus. Yeah. I, I think it is kind of fun-ish, but the uncomfortable talking heads are not great, and it goes on way too long. It doesn't really add to the plot. Mm-hmm. If they hadn't cut significant, important plot bits from this film, I wouldn't care about the night bus, but they did, and so I do. I did write, oh, the fate of Arnold from Magic School Bus. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Wow. Also, this movie introduces the idea that electricity flickers when Harry feels emotions because he's a stranger thing. Mm -hmm. I guess we should mention that this is a new director after Christopher Columbus was just too tired to go on with the film series. We have Alfonso Cuaron here. Yes, oh my goodness, I didn't realize. <laughs> and it's a very different direction. It feels far from seamless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We get a lot more of nonverbal and wandless magic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of the stuff. Yeah. Which I get that maybe verbal magic feels silly or whatever. I, I can see how a person might get to that space. Because like we have the same thing with uh, Doctor Strange where, sadly, Bennett Cumberbatch is not shouting, I summon the, the talons of Tikarax or whatever, unlike the comics. But there's a lot more of that like kind of just point and things happen in this. And I think it doesn't work with the later world building we get of like one less magic equals powerful. I think another big change here is the use of music to highlight comedy. There's a lot of jokes in this that are just kind of there, and the only reason that they give the audience to actually laugh is because the music is telling you that you should. Yeah. I, I expected there to be like a record scratch during the Dementor scene, <laughs> or the, the Bogart scene, and there was actually record scratch there. <laughs> that would have been fun. The Bogart scene is pretty good, though. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, I wish we got more from the characters, but I get it expediency. Yeah. Unknown Patel sister. Why clown? Why is that better? <laughs> I have a fan theory that the other sister comes up and it just she's ridiculous into a snake. <laughs> <laughs> like like the dress from Cinderella, but with clown and snake. Yeah, the Patel sisters. It's weird because in the early films they make a change from the book that they then have to correct because they're yeah. both in Gryffindor in movies three and four. Mm-hmm. Because they're just the same person. Yep. And I hate it. You know who's not a person in movie three? Hermione. Like, this movie does not know how to write Hermione at all. Like, none of her lines feel right. Yeah, we get, like, a few glimmers of Hermione peeking through, but not a lot. Mm -hmm. Which is really frustrating because she's central to 
the climax of the film. I also don't see her having like the effects of her Jesse from Saved by the Bell Adderall moment. Come again? In, in the books, like the fact that she's time traveling and like taking on this course load is apparent mm. visually. Um, and the boys are like, oh, Hermione looks worse than usual because we're boys. Right. Like bagged into her eyes and stuff. Yeah. We don't see her her Adderall crash. Yeah, she's she's working on like thirty hour days. Yeah. Um, which I think makes a lot more sense for her like sassing a teacher. Like I can't imagine like getting a full eight and a half hours Hermione uh sassing a teacher ever. Even Trelawney. Mm. Who is great in these. I love Trelawney. She's very well done. I love her. She's another one who was like, Oh, this is exactly how I imagine this yeah. character. Yeah. Emma Thompson is doing an amazing job. Another person we really only get like two scenes from, which again, sad, but I get it. Expediency. That's the watchword for this movie. They breeze through so many important things and things that are going to be useful knowledge later. But then we have these like long drawn out sequences, like the flight with Buckbeak or the little vignettes of the seasons changing with the Whomping Willow and it murdering bluebirds. Yep. I thought those scenes are inherently bad. I think the scene with Buckbeak where it's the first time Harry's having fun in a long time is good for an emotional thing. But again, there's more of it than we need and there's other stuff to get to. Like, at no point does Harry find out that his dad was prongs. Nope. Never. For the next four films, you kept, like, having a thing where anytime Harry and Sirius or Harry and Lupin were alone or pausing for, like, breath, you would say, also your dad could turn into a stag. (laughs) Because it's so fucking important. Without that information, the Patronus charm at the end of the movie has no emotional impact whatsoever. I also hate the way that Remus and Snape react to finding the Marauder's Map. It it, it says Messus, Mooney, Padfoot, and Prongs. Like, oh, your father's map kind of thing? Yeah, that could have been a good way to do things. Or even if, like, Snape had just vagued about, like, history repeating itself. I think there's, like, an opportunity to play with time loops both literally and also... Generationally? Generationally, yeah. We kind of get between, like, when we have Snape, Sirius, and Remus all together, you're a grown man acting like children. In the scene where everybody is shouting! Yeah. But yeah, having Hermione call them in and acting like children would have been great, and a very Hermione thing to do. Mm-hmm. Well, that would require that scene to last more than, like, 14 seconds. Yep. I'm being very negative about this movie because I don't like it but i think that like there are some great parts like buckbeak looks absolutely gorgeous mm-hmm. i agree well done i love things i love the way the dementors look the filmmakers went through a lot of different processes trying to figure out how to make the dementors look the way they do and also they came up with Wasn't like, like underwater yeah gorgeous thrown off by the horrible cgi hand right please just play puppet makers <laughs> right i think alfonso Caron was very filthy if it must die for this movie which is a pity yes. Another thing that felt really weird to me is Harry getting into Hogsmeade under the invisibility cloak. Oh, yeah. He just acts like a total asshole while he's there. Ah. He steals candy from Neville. He just, like, barges through a crowd of people after he hears some bad news. Mm -hmm. Later on, Ron and Hermione follow the footprints, and Harry is just standing in the woods crying underneath the invisibility cloak like a normal person. Because he was a friend! <laughs> I get that you kind of need to do something to show where Harry is under the cloak, but I think that there probably were better ways to do that. Also, he could have stolen candy from Malfoy. Mm-hmm. Or anybody else. Imagine if he stole candy from Snape. <laughs> I want a mini short of this Harry and his cloak, cloak tormenting Snape. <laughs> 
I'm, I am a little disappointed that we don't get more of Harriet butting heads with Malfoy in this. Like, I really would have loved it if at one point, while Malfoy is hamming up his injury to get Buckbeat murdered to just to screw over Hagrid, that Harry rubs it in his face that he doesn't have a house elf anymore because of him. Right. I mean, I feel like mocking Malfoy for owning slaves should have been, like, more of a thing, but, you know. I really enjoy when we get the reveal that Sirius Black is an Adamagus, that we have the foot, the, the paw prints that turn to footprints across the floor. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. And it plays into the stuff with the maps that we've seen all movies, so it's, like, a good visual yeah. motif being included. Yeah. There are a lot of visual design choices in this film that I appreciate. I just wish that more of the important parts of the plot were maintained and that there was a better understanding of these characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think the sacrifice of those things was worth the interesting visuals that we do get. Yeah. Also, how do we feel about Lupin as an actor? I don't necessarily have any problems with him. I do kind of like his design in werewolf form. I like how like kind of spindly and stringy he looks because he's a very spindly and stringy man. Yeah. It is a visual variety on the werewolf, and that's kind of hard to do. Like, there's only so many ways to do man with head of wolf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and unfortunately, so many of them are bad. This one's okay. Mm-hmm. It's not the worst I've seen. It's not the best. Yeah. Yeah. Even though I really love Tendi Small's acting choices, um, having spent yeah. years in rat form, how he is still doing the, like, the mannerisms. And we kind of get that with Sirius, too. The way he, he walks around people uh, is very territorial dog-like. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, nice. That tracks really well. I like that. And because we don't really see these characters in their youth form, we don't know if they were always like that or if this is a new thing. It's a good way to give the characters depth without needing to explain more. Yes. I wish we could, would have gotten a little bit more of that with McGonagall since she is also an Animagius. Yeah. yeah. Though I think it's more interesting because she, has, she hasn't spent so much time in cat form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We do need more of McGonagall like, licking her hand. <laughs> Speaking of, like, mannerisms, I really wish they had been able to merge their Dumbledores, Dumbledores a little bit more. Yeah, the shift in how Dumbledore is portrayed is very drastic. Yeah. Really unfortunate that the previous actor died. And three and four have a lot of these growing pains. And I really wish that there was more consistency from films one, two, three, and four. Yes. Because the breakpoint between four and five is perfect because that's when Voldemort comes back and that's where things drastically change. Mm-hmm. And having a change in director that we do get, and that director goes on to direct films five, six, and both parts of seven. I think they were trying for some things like the Dementors making things sadder, but the non-Dementor bits aren't like noticeably unsad, so it doesn't quite work. Mm-hmm. I suppose that like, stayed on as like, an artistic director or like mm. yeah like if he brought all his sensibilities to like the way that the world looks and then had someone else to like be the one to film it that could have been a very good marriage mm-hmm. yes i think we're probably ready for our drink count for movie three. Oh yeah so our, our drink count for movie three uh we have Dumbledore's entire backup plan for solving the problem being let hermione solve it with time travel i mean i agree that letting hermione solve the problem is probably the best choice you could generally make but i think that Putting all your eggs in, in a single time basket might not have been wise. Also, Dumbledore seems too okay with Malfoy being attacked by Buckbeak. I know that Malfoy kind of deserves it, but I think that as a headmaster, he should care more. 
Like, sometimes when, when Draco says, Oh, my father will hear about this! His father should hear about this. Yeah, we haven't gotten to it yet, but I will eventually make a case for why Umbridge wasn't wrong. <laughs> and let's get into The Goblet of Fire. Our final film for this episode. The one I feel the worst for, because it is a very long book, and there's not a great way to adapt a lot of it, because there's so much happening. Yeah, the page count between book three and book four is almost doubled. There are over 600 pages of Goblet of Fire. It is the second longest book. And we've talked before about how we kind of think that this should have been a miniseries. The movies are fine, but if they had five to eight episodes per book, it probably could have gotten into a lot of the plot stuff that just gets left. And I think this one definitely suffers a lot for it. This one should have been the the two-part movie. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I think we were were quite there yet uh, with films doing that. Or even like... Two movies released simultaneously, both of which are The Goblet of Fire, but one is, like, Just Try Wizard stuff and all that drama, and one is everything else. Yes. Like, what a weird, like, artistic choice of having two movies that have the same ending, but they're different parts of the same story going on. Ooh, that would have been interesting. Mm -hmm. Before we get too far in the film, we have changed directors again. Mm -hmm. We've also changed composers. John Williams is no longer here. We have Patrick Doyle, who you might know from Thor. Also, I believe, Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. Mm-hmm. Like, he's a competent-ish music maker, but he's no John Williams. I mean, who is? Uh, Howard Ashman and, and Alan Menken. <laughs> I, I can't argue with that. <laughs> Nor should you. This movie makes a weird choice to have 20 minutes of build-up for the Quidditch World Cup and then none of the actual match. It's so odd. I, I was like, oh, we, no Quidditch scene. I, I forgot about that. Makes... No sense to have all this build up and show none of the game at all. Like, e- not even a montage. It's just an elaborate introduction to Crumb. Yeah. Right. Who isn't that much of a character in this movie? Fortunately. Yeah. <laughs> He's so good in the books. I love him. Yeah. So, I really wish that we got, like, a montage of the game because I know it's, like, a long one because Ireland scores all those goals enough to make the snitch not even matter. But. For some reason, most of the first four films do not utilize montages at all. Mm-hmm. It's weird. And it's a huge change for five that we'll get into next episode. Mm-hmm. But it seems like it's a really useful tool for getting through a lot of important stuff quickly. And they just leave that tool on the table. Mm-hmm. Also, the grounds around the Quidditch World Cup and how that all looks and feels made me realize... Burning Man probably started as a wizard festival. Yeah. Um, Before being co-opted by muggles. A note I have for this movie is they should have cut Rita Skeeter. Mm, yeah. Very well acted. Good character. Like, she's really fun. Very vivacious. Brings a lot to the world. But as far as the plot, I don't think she needs to be here. No. Um, Rita's there mostly to kind of stir the pot with Ron and Hermione and Harry and Victor and all of the relationship struggles going on between these teenagers yeah but we don't have time for that in this film and i'm totally fine cutting most of that but it also means that we don't really need her around and honestly having it be moody poly juicing into other people to spread rumors and then being the one to like stick by harry to ingratiate himself so he can capture him later makes a lot of sense and i really wish they would have went with that direction for uh, Barty Crouch as Mad-Eye. Mm-hmm. I think it would have been an economical way to get the same plot points in while also 
setting up some of the Polyjuice Potion a little bit more elegantly. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about the aesthetics of the Death Eaters in this film? <laughs> oh, you mean the clan? Clan, yeah. Which is clever in filmmaking to like tell us the, the right allegory. But also, this is your summer fantasy movie. Uh-huh. Maybe we don't need the clan to show up. Yeah. yeah. I am glad that they got retold for the next one. I think the Death Eaters work much better in 5. It also makes sense that they get retooled because, oh, this is new Voldemort's army. You need new clothes. Yes. Death Eater shopping montage. Oh my god. Speaking of new clothes, (laughs) Flitwick changes his style every single year. I call facelifts. (laughs) Like we were talking about it. Jackson, you didn't realize that it was the same actor for (laughs) all the films. It's Warwick Davis in every one of them. They look slightly different, therefore they can't be the same person. If a character gets a haircut, then I assume they're a new actor. <laughs> I'm very bad at faces. Assume that the Council of Governors headed by Lucius Malfoy keeps trying to get Dumbledore to fire Flitwick because he's not a human wizard, and their solution is just keep putting him in different wigs. <laughs> <laughs> this is Flitwick, and then the new hire, Nitwick, and then Blitwick. Yeah. The farce and Dumbledore put together. <laughs> that feels right to me. So, on a world building level, I think that I wish there were more non humans at Hogwarts, like more non humans within Wizarding Society. It might be interesting to explore, but I guess that's a whole new thing to get into, and the movies don't really have time for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of differences between the books and the movies, I hate our Barty Crouch Sr. Oh. Uh, I hate that they combine Ludo Batman and him, and it's just the worst parts of both. He's, he feels weird, and I don't get this, like, sense of power that I feel like I should get from him as a character. Yeah, like, he should have this sense of, uh, like, I've been instilled power by the, the ministry, mm-hmm. and we don't really get that hit from him. He's mostly just, oh god, things are out of control, I need to handle this, and I'm sad about my son. Mm-hmm. I do appreciate the sad about my son parts, though. I think that works. Because yeah. in the books... Barty Crouch Sr. ran against Fudge to be Minister of Magic, but because Voldemort was defeated, they didn't feel like they needed this wartime minister anymore. He's the one who is the reason Sirius went to prison without trial. We don't get, like, a war dog feel from him. Right. Yeah, that's fair. He feels more like a sort of ineffectual politician than Fudge does, which is impressive because Fudge is very ineffectual. All 18 of him. Also, the likely Hitler mustache is a choice? Yeah, what's up with that? I, I guess they're going for more like a Charlie Chaplin vibe, but mm. why? Does Harry find the body of him in the um in the book? Or is that just a thing the film does for expediency to make sure that Harry can't have a good thing? He and Crumb find him. Um, when Crumb pulls him aside and be like, are you and Hermione together? Because I like Hermione. He's not dead. Mm. Uh, but then Harry goes to get Dumbledore because Crouch asks for him. And he, when he comes back... Crumb has, has been knocked out and wakes up acting weird because that's when he gets in period. And Crouch is gone because in the books, Mad-Eye, quote-unquote, transforms him into a bone and buries him. Which I love. It's That's, that's such a great line in the books. It's such a like, mm-hmm. creepy, scary thing. Mm-hmm. He's not just dead or, alternatively, he's not exactly dead. He's just no longer a person. Like, what happens to his soul? Is his soul stuck in the bone? Since- world building and we we turn two cans into water goblets so yeah 
there is a lot of like ethics of personhood in these things that are never really explored, and I'm kind of okay with leaving that to the audience's imagination. Mm-hmm. Another big qualm I have with like characterization of this film, I don't really buy Ron being angry at Harry the way he is with the whole Goblet of Fire situation. I can understand jealousy. Anger doesn't make any sense. Or rather, we don't get enough time spent with him being angry to fully understand how he got there. It feels like too fast of a pivot. Mm-hmm. We get much more in the books how Ron has an inferiority complex. Yeah. Which we kind of get in the movies. Which makes sense. In the first movie with the Arisad, with the, with the mirror of Arisad, but then we don't ever see it again until now. Yeah. They could have played out the whole thing where they left him behind while they went time traveling. Ron doesn't get to go time traveling. <laughs> Which I think, like, could have been interesting. We could have, like, played that up a lot, but also give it, there's not a lot of room, but they, the room that they give it doesn't always work. Uh, and this movie's trying to do a lot. It's a sports movie. It's a teen comedy. The relationship. Relationship. Yeah. Um, it's harboring in a darker era of these books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's also a complicated mystery plot. This film has a lot of problems. Part of it is just there's a lot of ground to cover, and this film has to prioritize. I think one piece that it gets nearly perfect is the Yule Ball. I think everything going on there is fantastic. Mm -hmm. I think the way it's shot and a little bit of slowdown that we get around that scene is great. I think the set design is gorgeous. Everything looks amazing and whimsical. Mm -hmm. I want more diversity in men's wizarding fashion. Yes, same. I mean, I want more diversity in men's fashion in general, but yes, I agree with you. Mm I am glad we get the Weird Sisters. They don't make a lot of sense for the aesthetic of this Yule Ball, but I'm okay with it. One of the first songs I ever downloaded on iTunes. <laughs> that is incredibly on brand. Also, there's a whole subculture of, like, Harry Potter-themed bands, and people oh, yeah. listen to them. I listened to a lot of that in, like, in my youth, when I was, like, more into, like, the Harry Potter fandom. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the, the two genders, Derms? String and uh, Bopatons. Oh. <laughs> you mean Bobatons? Like Dumbledore keeps saying? Yes, uh. Bobatons! And also, like, there's been a lot of time just lingering on the Bobatons' butts. Yeah, like I have in my notes, they're teenagers. Why are we getting ass shots? Right? Like, I understand why characters in the universe are looking at them, but the camera shouldn't linger that way. Mm-hmm. I do know how Attaché Case is part of the Bobatons uniform. That feels right. But also, we don't learn much else about them. Dermstring um, and Bobatons are very, like, non-characters in this narrative. Characters saying that it's supposed to promote inter-school connectivity and relations. Mm-hmm. I think part of it is I don't really recall any classes we actually get, and we, so we don't see any of them in classes with the other students. And our two Avatar characters for them, Fleur and Crumb are non-characters. They barely get any lines. Mm-hmm. Even though Fleur becomes a significant character later on. Mm-hmm. They talk about how... You see people change in the maze. I wrote down, ah, you will develop a personality of any kind in the maze. <laughs> I am sad that they changed the maze from like a really fun obstacle course with like a sphinx and an anti-gravity thing and a spider to like just... A weird mind control thing, and I'm sad that instead of like the very obvious choice of Crumb gets evil, Fleur gets scared, we didn't get like Fleur goes Lizzie Borden and Crumb gets scared. I think that would have been a, a better way to show the characters changing. It would have been more interesting, yeah. mm-hmm. especially because we lose the scene where Crumb gets not crucified. 
Oh my goodness, I can't remember the spell. Imperious. Imperious, there we go. So I hate the way that we changed the mermaid a second task. I don't remember how that changes. So in the book, Harry tries to save everyone, and he has a conversation with the merfolk. Because the merfolk are like, oh no, you only take one. He's like, okay, but I can't like leave them. And he actually like fights the merfolk. Yeah, the merfolk are like, what the fuck? <laughs> it has some weird wizarding supremacy things that go on. Right. But for Harry's character, it makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but instead we get him attacked by the Gwendolos, mm-hmm. which just goes on to, to show, or to, to say things about Floor that don't need to be said because she's an athlete nope. and good. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of, like, the Grindelows, like, he comes out with, like, these abrasions from their, like, tentacles and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And that's a thing that I noticed throughout most of the film is just, like, Harry's always covered in these, like, cuts and abrasions. I'm like, did they fire Madame Pomfrey? Like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. It, surely there must be, like, a, I don't know, cure 1d6 hit points potion. that He's like, here, you're athleting in a thing that is four years above your pay grade. Have this. I get that it's to show... The stakes are really high. Things are real now. Mm. But so many of the early books involved important scenes in the hospital wing that completely ignoring that it exists now feels very odd. It could have also been interesting to have Snape show up like, Hey, Mr. Potter, we cannot have you running around with scrapes and cuts on your face while we are trying to represent Hogwarts. Here is a potion to heal yourself. Mm. (laughs) As he like walked away with his cape fluttering dramatically. Mm -hmm. Because... Making Snape a more interesting character is always fun. And we get a, a tiny little bit of it this in this one. Snape gets to do things. Yeah. You know who also gets to do things? Neville. Yay! Hey. I do really like getting rid of Dobby and replacing it with Neville with the Gillyweed. I think that works a lot better. It plays into Neville's strength as a character. We get more of him leading into him becoming a more significant character in the later books. And it also means that we don't have to get into the where the fuck did Dobby come from stuff. Yeah. Um, although it does give us that one scene where Harry and Neville are just hanging out by the lake like they're at the start of a slash fic. I don't know what they're doing there. They have never hung out before. It is also super noticeable that Neville is wearing false teeth in this film now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Neville's actor was getting too hot and they were trying to like tamp that down, but they couldn't. Mm-hmm. Dobby and Winky were supposed to be in this film. Uh, and they wanted to do elaborate puppets. Ooh. But they didn't build them to... And that's why they were cut. They didn't build them to what? Blink. Oh. Ooh. No. <laughs> oh, no. I hate that. I feel like it's something you could fix in post, yeah. but I, I don't know what the, the budget for this was. I mean, you had enough for a giant dragon sequence all over Hogwarts. You clearly had enough to make some puppets blink. God, why did that go on for so long? They wanted a dragon fight. It's not even a fight. It's a chase. When Hagrid shows... Harry the dragons in the forest on his his date. The the dragon puppet head is the same puppet base as the basil's head. I did not catch that. Nice. I mean, like, I get it. Reuse your stuff. Mm-hmm. I think we've kind of been focusing a lot on the relationship drama and the Triwizard Tournament. Let's talk about, like, the capstone of this film. Motherfucking Voldemort, who is so good. I love his character design. He looks fantastic. The facial prosthetics just blend in seamlessly. He very much looks like this broken thing. He's... He's an uggo. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But still somehow enticing. He still has this charisma about him. There's something very, like, imperious about him. Like like a stone pillar or something. Like, you feel like you just have to go around him. You can't tunnel through him or push him down. 
there's this sense that you shouldn't be engaging with them, but you can't help it. Like, you can't look away. Mm. What we're saying is this Voldemort fucks. <laughs> you enjoy how, how, like, the design is, again, sometimes like, oh, this is exactly what I imagined. Yeah. Although I do think the design looks a little bit better before his ears fully come in. Like, we're getting that kind of around mm. the shot as he's, like, coming out of the cauldron. Oh, and yeah, we're still a little withered. Yeah, and I wish they would have kept that as opposed to, like, going, oh, yeah, just, like, normal ears. But I get that that would have been easier on the actor. Yeah. I also love the goopy beam struggle. Beam struggles are this tropey thing. You find them everywhere, especially in anime. And I like that they did their own take on it, where as these beams are colliding, like, there's these drips of this magical energy that's solidifying and coming into existence. And it just is so iconic. No one else has done a beam struggle like that. And I'm really glad that they did it this way here and they keep it going throughout the rest of the series. Mm -hmm. A thing you mentioned that we're kind of sad wasn't quite a thing was that there's a moment when the Priority and Katahdom thing happens to give a bubble around Harry and Voldemort where it almost looks like Fox surrounding them both, which I think would have been a really cool choice, but they didn't go with that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually had to pause and rewind it and kind of frame by frame to see if I could see, like, a phoenix head poking out of the two arches from either side meet, but it was not the case. Although, after that great sequence with Voldemort, perfect capstone to the film, there's this really weird emotional whiplash going back to Hogwarts with the portkey. They come back, and it's, like, Harry and the dead body of Cedric Diggory, and like there's just all this like triumphant music and i think it takes a little bit too long for people to realize what the hell is going on Mm -hmm. and that sequence is pretty good because it gives some weight but i think again that's a little just too stretched shade a little bit off there and spend a little more time with the barty crouch reveal which goes by incredibly quickly I also really hate the Barty Crouch Jr. reveal because we've seen what happens when a polyjuice potion wears off in these movies. It doesn't look like that. Mm-hmm. I also really hate that, like, early in the film, we see the enemy glass and we could have seen, like, Barty Crouch's senior's face in it or Dumbledore's face in it, but we just see old white people. Oh, I think if it had been, like, Barty Crouch Sr. and Snape, that would have been a good, like, pairing of characters who we're not entirely sure about. If it was, like, Dumbledore, that's kind of very obvious, but uh, if it was, like, Snape and Barty Jr., that would have been enough. Mm-hmm. So, like, tip us off is something's going on. Karkaroff. Mm, yeah. Oh, Karkaroff, who is almost a character. Yeah. I think the best thing that they did to tip us off about Mad-Eye not being everything that he seems is we get Barty Jr., Polyjuiced as Moody, interacting with his father. Mm. And he has the same nervous tick that his son does. We don't know it at the time. We, we find out about it in like a scene or two. But I really like that knowing that it's not 100% whether is that Barty Crouch Jr. disguised as Moody or is that Moody being a dick rubbing it in his father's face? Mm-hmm. I wanted more of his reaction to Neville, seeing as he's also the one with Beltrix who tortured Frank and Alice. We get a tiny bit of that, but not nearly as much as we could have had. If Neville was more of an actual character and not a plot device in these films, I feel like we would have gotten it. Yeah, we get a little bit more of that backstory in the next film. I think that is definitely a thing that, like, they had to cut for time and I get it, but unfortunately it leaves Neville, like, out to dry mm-hmm. again. We got anything else we want to talk about? Um, 
I don't think so. And this episode is already running pretty long. So mm-hmm. I think it is time for our last drink count. Oh, yeah. So this episode, I only had two. One of them is letting Harry be in the Triwizard Tournament. Like, surely there must have been some way around this. St- Nothing about this is good. Stupid magical contracts. Wizards. Mm-hmm. All about coulda, not about shoulda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second one is Dumbledore being like, no, no, ignore your psychic visions. It's probably fine. Uh. <laughs> yeah. And especially since literally the next film's like, oh, yeah, we should do something about that. Here, mm-hmm. have one-on-one study time with Snape. Ah, inspired. Well, during his best laid plans. So a part of every episode of this prep school bracket so far has been our alignment grid. So who out of these movies of the students is most jock, most prep, most nerd, and most goth? Of the students? Of yeah. the students. Okay. I think Victor Crumb has to be most jock. Sure. I think I would either choose him or Wood. Oliver Wood? Sure. Yeah, Oliver Wood. I mean, Victor Crumb is like an international sports star. I think he, yeah. he wins that by default. Yes, but he's only in one of these films. Yeah. To be fair, Oliver Wood's only in like two. Yeah. Because three and four have no Quidditch. Yes. Oliver Wood has less jock energy than Crumb does. Yes, that's fair. I, I disagree. Uh, Crumb has other things in his personality. Wood only has Quidditch. Mm, that's true. Yeah. I just, I don't think it's because both of them get so little characterization in the films that Wood seems a more holistic character than Victor Crumb does, but that's not, that's not their fault. That's the movies. Yeah. Okay. Where do we want to go next? Well, who's most nerd? It's Hermione. I mean, yeah, it, it kind of has to be Hermione. Mm-hmm. I mean, she checked out Hogwarts A History for light reading. She used the phenomenal power, cosmic power to rip time and space apart to go to extra classes. <laughs> now, Hermione Granger proving that knowledge is indeed power. Right. Is is Malfoy most prep? Probably. He has goonies. Yeah, um, true. He does. He warns Harry about falling in with the wrong sort in the first book. Mm-hmm. What, in the first movie, so... I think owning slaves is definitely a prep thing. <laughs> yes, that too. And followed on the board. Right? Yeah. All right, that leaves us with goth. I have a proposal, but I'm not sure if it will technically count. Go ahead. Moaning Myrtle. I'll allow it. A student, yes. Like, she's kind of a student and kind of not a student, but she's definitely the most goth. And she never graduated, so... If she had not died and like been able to graduate, she would have turned into a wizard dominatrix, obviously. That's very true. And that's a very goth thing to do. We haven't talked about the uncomfortable scene of her just like rubbing all up on Harry in the bathtub scene, and we're not going to. Um, <laughs> Neville? Neville for most goth? Ooh. Loner? No one understands him. He had the wealth of inf- information. He loves plants. That's a very gothy mm. thing. He has the dead parent. Well, not dead parent, but like troubled home life. No one actually talks to him. He helps his school win by being a victim. <laughs> yeah, even his friends have to, like, curse him to get get him out of their way. Also, he's actually a student. Yes. I think Boating Merle it most typifies everything, but is it is questionable whether she counts as a student or not. Yeah. To avoid that, I'm, I'm definitely willing to put down Neville. Harry is also somewhat goth, but has some jock energy to him that kind of offsets that. It also changes in later films. I'm really interested to see... Who gets slotted in next episode? Because I think there we're going to see quite a few shakeups. Yeah. But also, McGonagall, most jock of the teachers. Yes. And Snape is obviously most goth. <laughs> Obvious. None more goth. Apart from, I guess, the literal un- the, the literal witch, who is somewhat goth-ish, I guess. 
Yeah. Oh, Hagrid is for sure the most nerd of the staff. Oh, yes. We're going to put Lockhart for most prep of the staff? Yes. Yeah. I think that about does it for our episode. Yeah, that'll wrap up the first four Harry Potter movies. Mm-hmm. Thank, Thank you, you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, is there anything you'd like to promote before we uh, let you get on your way? No, I only have a social media presence, and my entertainment job is not currently. Fair Saws. enough. It's also incredibly like local, if I understand correctly. Oh, pleasure, yes. Thank you so much for being on. For our listeners, we will be having a returning guest next episode. To make sure you're caught up with that, uh, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your pods. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Possum Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.